Would the world stop turning if we did an entire episode that didn't have to do with only politics? We're about to find out. We will get to our core problem and do a ton more on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. The older song, and I will not call it old because I don't want to offend any part of my audience, but the older song that goes, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. That comes to mind because I can see clearly now a lot of the political fog is past us and we can, while paying attention to the things that matter, get on to some other things. And that is what I hope to do today. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on WHRT 89.7. That is the signal I'm going to mention. There's another signal, but guys, if you have not listened to the terrestrial radio show, you podcasters, if you have not listened on a Saturday morning on 89.7, It's luscious, like it's meaty. I listen to myself for a full like three minutes because I don't want to be a a narcissistic psychopath and listen to my own show for more than three minutes. But I listened, and like I sound like a man, like all kind of masculine and stuff. It's a good signal on 89.7, so welcome to those who are listening there. Also, (laughs) I got at least four or five messages from listeners of 89.7, because those who don't know this, because I have some listeners far-flung. You guys are out across the spectrum. Here in the upstate of South Carolina, there's a family of of radio stations that, has, that do Christian radio, and some of it is top, I would call it top 40, but it's Christian contemporary, the version of top 40 for Christian music. And then there's praise and worship music, which is a subgenre, and then there's the talk station. Well, 89.7 used to be the station where the praise and worship music got played. So the Hillsong, the Elevation Worship, all of the, I don't, can't think of the other big ones, World Shakers, you know, praise and worship music. And so the talk station just took over the old praise and worship station. <laughs> and so some people in their lives, you know, had their, their preset when they get in their cars, 89.7. They woke up on Saturday morning looking to get their worship on. They woke up looking for, and tra- got in their car, hit the button, looking to get in touch with the Lord. And instead, they heard me. They heard me yelling about something. And some of you emailed, uh, like, who are you and why are you on? Well, my name's Corey. It's not my fault. Blame someone at the station. Sorry to ruin your Saturday morning. All right, I got it. That's, I enjoyed that. I thought that's fun and funny that we accidentally ran into some new listeners last week. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday morning in Greenville, South Carolina, and you are invited. If you are without a church home, we would love to have you. I saw two stories. They caught my eye that led me down a non-political path, and that is where I want to begin today. We will get into some political things. I have some COVID thoughts as there's just some folks, especially on the left, changing their tune about how to handle it. I got a couple political questions from listeners I want to get to. We, we'll do some, some cultural, uh, some political parts of, of life, but it's not where I want to begin. I found this article. It was published in, I think, the Weekly Standard, which is a conservative publication. But it was from a professor at a secular college. And she was bemoaning biblical illiteracy. She teaches in the humanities, and what she was saying is, 
a lot of Western civilization is built on biblical stories. You really can't understand Emily Dickinson's poetry in fullness if you don't get all of her references to biblical narratives. You really don't understand Western civilization itself without understanding a lot of Bible because the Western civilization was built on the Old Testament first, and then so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the peoples that come from there, and then ultimately New Testament principles in Jesus. You don't understand the history class. You don't understand the humanities. She argues you really don't understand Shakespeare and the great books of history without understanding Bible. And so she talks about having taught in previous eras, I believe this is an older woman, where it was apparent all of the kids in her class went to Sunday school. All the kids in her class went to some kind of catechism or something. And they knew enough Bible just by growing up that she could just teach the class normally. But then she comes to a new a new era of kid, and she can't say things like, well, you know, you just that's where you, uh, the kind of decision where you split the baby. Like, what? Split the baby? That sounds horrific. What are you talking about? Well, you know, the story, King Solomon, or King, wait, is that Saul? No, that's Solomon. King Solomon, where two women come to him and say they both have the baby. You don't know the story? No, you don't. Oh, you don't know the story. She's trying to teach Emily Dickinson or Nathaniel Hawthorne. She's trying to teach Shakespeare. And they don't actually know the references. And so that caught my, I caught my eye. Because I, I do love this, guys. I love the Bible. I, I don't love it enough. It is the most important book in human history. It has given birth to Western culture, the greatest cultures and civilizations and societies in human history. It is also the book, and more importantly, most importantly, the revelation of God to humanity. He wrote down our story and his story. He revealed himself. Uh, We talk about it in theology as general revelation and special revelation. That generally, any human on earth can look at the stars, can look at the solar system and the ordered nature thereof. They can look at biology into the cell. They can look at the body. They can look at the, the animal kingdom and how it all works together, how our ecology works so well together, and they can have generally revealed to them that there is something bigger than ourselves, something, some one, some force, ordered, designed the universe, general revelation. But then there is special revelation. Where general revelation ends, we ask, well, who then? Who designed? Who? How? How this happened? Who did it? And then the Bible comes along. And says, well, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, Elohim, spiritual being, created the heavens and the earth. And as we continue the biblical narrative, we find that this Elohim, the spiritual being, is named Yahweh. He's a personal God. He has a covenant name. And he puts on flesh and becomes this Nazarene named Jesus. There is a story here of, of Scripture that is fundamental to who we are, that reveals God. And here's a professor, a secular professor, bemoaning the fact that we've lost the story of Scripture. And then I saw another one. I saw a video someone post pasted together of a lot of pastors and preachers, mostly, I'm, I'm going to throw it out there, I know it will upset some of you, mostly from charismatic circles, Pentecostal, Church of God types, or those not tethered to any denomination, so they have no accountability, 
prophesying of a Donald Trump win in the presidential election. So this is before the election. They're all saying it. God has told me. Thus says the Lord, Donald Trump will win. And then some in that video prophesying. This inauguration will not happen. The Lord has told me. I'm going to say it. You know, there was a punishment for that in the Old Testament. It's not lenient. When you say you are speaking for God, and what you speak is false, well, that should be a terrifying thing. It should bring terror to the person who said they were speaking for the God of the universe and got it wrong. And it led me here. We have a giant problem of biblical illiteracy. And if we reverse engineered every problem in the culture, every educational problem, every familial problem, every problem in the arts and entertainment, every problem in the government, if we reverse engineered every problem we have, you know what it would come down to? Biblical literacy. The Bible tells us the world as it actually is. And we have lost hold of what the world is, of who humans are, who God is, and how we relate. Because we have lost that, we are seeing the world dimly, darkly. And all of our problems emanate from our lack of scriptural knowledge. It gives us all kinds of problems. It gives us the problem that there is no core question. In your marriage, in your organization, in your business, in your in any given relationship you have, if there is conflict, one of the great things of both being believers is you can go to a referee, the referee of Scripture. The core question is, well, what does the Bible say? And when we have lost that, we come to a culture that then says, well, search your feelings, search your emotions. Or gives you platitudes like follow your heart. You got to listen to your gut. Or if you don't follow your heart or listen to your gut or search your feelings, well, then let me just give you this, this video. Let me give you this podcast of this other person who gives you his or her thoughts, his or her philosophy, his or her expertise on a given field. And as we search our feelings, follow our heart, hearts, listen to our guts, and learn from people's just general thoughts from life, we stand on very shifting sands. We have our foundations set up on things that should not be trusted. You should not trust your feelings, your heart, or your gut. You should not trust some random person's wisdom. Example, you should never trust mine. If I can't give you some scripture, some Bible on where I'm coming from. Why on earth would you listen to me? Why would you listen to yourself? If you can't get some scripture, something solid on what you think or believe, why on earth are you listening to your own thoughts, feelings, your heart, your gut? Why are you doing that? And so we have this biblical illiteracy. I've seen it even in surveys and studies that start asking the American people just general questions about the Bible. And we have lost it. We are an utterly de-Christianized, post-Christian culture. We know nothing of the Bible. And so I wonder, how did, how did we get here? I'm sure we got here through secularization. A lot of the Christianity that America had practiced for 200 and something years was an American Christianity. To be a good American, you went to church and you were, quote, a Christian. 
but it was just part of your patriotism. And as that went away, and as it continues to go away, what we're finding is the people who actually identify as Christians are, are very genuine. They're the real ones. But so for us in the faith, how do we keep this from being a problem in the church? I have some thoughts. I thought about my own discipleship coming up. And I, I want to affirm one thing. I, I was part of an independent Baptist church when we came back from Africa uh, in, in Greenville before my dad and his cousin planted a church eventually called New Hope in what is eventually now called Beachwood Church. We had a group uh, called Awana, and I was a little sparky. I had a little red vest I would wear. And one of the great legacies that I grew up with that I love is we memorized a lot of Scripture. And it has been so formative to me that I can still just, off the top of my head, quote so much scripture just because it was, it was given to me as a kid that if, if you believe in God, believe also in me. But, but, uh, let, uh, how's that go? Let not your heart be troubled. Uh, believe in God. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my uh, Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare, uh, go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, there you may be also. I sort of mangled that because I grew up on the KJV and now don't use the KJV anymore. But my point there being, it just comes out, words of comfort. Let's do that. I think that's something we have to be doing. Teaching kids the Bible. That's where the power is. Not memorizing a quote. Not memorizing a syllogism from some preacher somewhere, but actually memorizing scripture. But, you know, I know some other of the discipleship I had was good. It's good that I know that the Bible is 66 books, 39 in the Old books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, that Psalms, or Psalm 119 is the longest chapter, Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter, that Jesus wept is the shortest verse, even though rejoice evermore is also two words but has more letters. I know a lot of trivia, but I think we focused a lot on that. And so let's focus on biblical narrative, the story of Scripture, the characters, how they all point to Jesus in one way or the other. I think we, we got here a little bit because we focused on worldly appeal. There was desire when the preaching time came to find some clever way to appeal to the non-believer. And it's just not at all what the preaching time is for. I think we probably got here because of laziness and the appeal of the world. Because I do, guys, listen, I've, I've got a Roku. Because I have a Roku, I have Disney+, Plus, Amazon, Prime Video, Netflix, Hulu. I got all those. I know WandaVision came out on Disney+. Plus. There's a new Pixar movie called Soul. I, I know, it's distracting. The world just, oh, the NFL playoffs have been masterful. I'm distracted. And so there's some laziness, there's some distraction. And I, I just end with this question. I, I, I see as a core problem, we have biblical illiteracy. It is the core of all of our problems. How do we address it? Well, let's address it by actually memorizing Scripture, the Bible itself, and then the stories of Scripture, not just trivia about the Bible, but the actual meta-narrative, the larger narrative of Scripture and what the Bible's for. And then let us be intentional about not trying to appeal to the world not being lazy, and finishing with this question, what on earth is more important? In what will you find more power and more comfort? In the pages of Scripture and in the very words of God.
as we come into a less political season, I want to start there. There's not a better place to begin. Let's be a people of the book. When we are cut, let us bleed scripture. When we come back, I do want to get back into some of the news going on around us. We'll try to look at that from a biblical perspective when you come back. For the Corey Truax Show on WHRT, his radio talk. Show on his radio talk 91.9 and 89.7. Thank you for listening wherever you find the podcast as well. My name is Corey Truax. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That is the list. I'm not doing the parlor thing. So, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there, and I hope you will. On to some news items. I would open with one of those almost arrogant, well, well, well. One of those things you, you do when you're about to do an I told you so? I, I am admittedly suspicious of the timing of what I'm about to give you, but I, I don't. Uh, let, me, let me not, I'm not a conspiracy guy at all, and so I can't prove my suspicion. So I'm going to give you my suspicion and then say, I could be totally wrong and I, I don't firmly believe it because I can't prove it. I'm about to give you some information from folks out of, the, out of the left who out of nowhere just think, yeah, we can't lock down. Because of COVID, yeah, I can't do lockdowns. We got to open up our economy. We got to get the economy moving, save people's jobs. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Check that timing out. I wonder what else is happening right now. I wonder whatever other political events might coincide with your desire that there be a better job market and economic flourishing. I'm not saying for sure it has to do with the fact that Joe Biden is about to be president of the United States, or by the time you listen to this, already is. So, uh, yeah, I don't know that's true. It just feels suspicious. For example, Newsweek, a rabidly left-wing source of news, published a, uh, a study, a story, that collects a bunch of different data. Actually, let me just read to you. From Newsweek, the, the title is, get this, COVID lockdowns have no clear benefit versus other voluntary measures. Oh, man. I wonder who said that in like May or June. I know this is radio, so you can't see that I'm raising my hand. Here's what the first paragraph says. A study evaluating COVID-19 responses around the world found that mandatory lockdown orders early in the pandemic may not provide significantly more benefits to slowing the spread of the disease than other voluntary measures such as social distancing or travel reduction. It is almost as if we were just going to have a pandemic that there's very little you can do. And you got to mitigate in some way. So they're saying, yeah, shutdowns were effective, about as effective as places that didn't shut down. And just emphasized social, dis- social distancing, staying apart from one another, and encouraging people to reduce their travel. This has become so abundantly clear because everybody's getting whipped by COVID by now. Like every state, every strategy around the world, absolutely everybody's getting COVID whipped. So maybe don't cause a second crisis because there's one. There's a COVID crisis that something caused a bat in China or a lab in China, whatever you choose to uh, whatever you, you choose to blame, that caused a crisis, a pandemic, 
I got the thing. Now more than half my church got the thing. We all, a lot of us have been through it. They caused that, and then we chose, we chose, listen to me, we chose to cause an economic, an economic meltdown by locking down everything. And now, days before a Democratic administration is sworn in, just so happens we got a study here that says, you know what we should do? Probably not shut down the economy because it wasn't even all that effective. And of course it wasn't in comparison to everything else because very little can be effective when you have a pandemic. There's only so much effort you can put in. It's, it's a pandemic. It's going to get some people. Now, I wanted to pull the audio, but I'm, I'm just, I wanted to also keep the show kind of tight. So let me just tell you uh, and remind you something I did on my show back in the summer. The, uh, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, said these words during a press conference. A, a reporter asked him, uh, there are people saying that the, the cure to COVID-19, your, your lockdowns your, is, the, is the cure, that the cure is worse than the disease. And I remember Andrew Cuomo very stupidly, immaturely said, the, uh, in his very uh, thick accent, that the disease is death. How, c- how can the cure be worse than the disease when the disease is death? And I indignantly into this microphone said, uh, no, it's not. Not for 99, over 99% of people that get COVID-19. There are additional deaths taking place, but no, the, the disease isn't death. That was back when we treated COVID-19 like a death sentence out of some psychotic reaction to this thing. And so remember, that's what he did. So remember, that's what the, the left generally on COVID-19 was this. Shut everything down or you hate, you hate human life. You're not even pro-life if you're not pro-shutdown. Heck, folks on the left were saying of Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and then Florida Governor DeSantis, they are dabbling in human sacrifice. Reopening their states is dabbling in human sacrifice. Forget the fact their states have fared better than New York and some, and some, uh, li- and some liberal states. And now it's all evening out. So forget, forget those facts. They were dabbling in human sacrifice because they opened. So remember those two things. You are anti-life. You don't care about humans. You're trying to kill grandma if you want to open your state. Also, the disease is death. That same guy, days before a Democratic president is inaugurated, changes his tune and says the following. We simply cannot stay closed until the vaccine hits critical mass. You know what, Governor Cuomo? You hate grandma. You're trying to kill my grandmother. Also, you hate human life. And don't you know that the disease is death? The cost is too high. We will have nothing left to open. That's what I was saying all summer long. What are you talking about the cost is too high? Oh, oh, let me do that thing that they used to do to us. What is the value of one human life? How much, how much money do you need? How much economic development is worth one human life, Governor Cuomo? And now you're telling me that it costs too much. I'd like to get that number, sir. When did you, when did you decide? When did you change your tune? What was the economic input that you hit a number and decided, all right, we've lost too much money. Now we can cost more lives by reopening. We must reopen the economy, but we must do it smartly and safely. I had been saying that. And most of us on the right 
have been saying that the entire time. You cannot shut the world down. You got to operate and you take the best mitigation efforts that you can. And so, uh, so good news, everybody. Apparently we're not going to lock down again, but again, there is some, eh, let's, let's call it some skepticism around the, the timing thereof. All right. There's like six other things I want to do on the show today here. I'm deciding live right here on the air as I do the show, which one is most logically segued to. How about this? They were accusing us. Uh, the left is accusing people like me of not caring about the sanctity of human life because we wanted to reopen the economy. Now they're all now they're all for it. So let's talk sanctity of human life for one second. We just passed what we call in the United States Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We are just coming up on, or depending on when you're listening, uh, just passed another anniversary of one of the most egregious things that's ever happened to the law and to morality. And that is the decision Roe versus Wade that largely legalized abortion in the first trimester, excuse me, the first two trimesters across the country. I, I think at some level, people like me, we uh, not, are not bored with the abortion issue, but we get nervous about uh, beating it over the head. Like, uh, you know, folks on the left, secular left, you guys are so obsessed with abortion. Now, you could probably take up all six years of my show, the 10 or 11 years I've been filling in for Dr. Beam, I probably spent less than 5% of my content on it. But at least every January when this passes, it's worth bringing up. It's something we need to talk about more. We mentioned it at Beachwood Church over the weekend. A lot of churches did. Because for all the other battles that are coming, we cannot lose sight of what is the most morally horrific thing in our lifetimes. America has got some egregious sins. Slavery was one of them. How we went about relocation of the natives is one of them. The endemic racism, even after the end of slavery, that's, that's one of them. It's a major American sin. And the slaughter of 70 million, 70 some odd million children for our own convenience, mostly. Just because we want to. It should bring us to our knees. Begging God for mercy on us. To be a people so obsessed with our own comfort and our own convenience that we choose to end the life of children and then have gotten so seared conscience, have our consciences so seared, so cold-hearted, that we're to the point in the culture that now we now celebrate it. A trending hashtag, shout your abortion. Now some women going to get that abortion and just not live streaming it, but taking selfies in the clinic. It is worth revisiting every January that this is right now our worst sin it's worth me saying to listeners who identify as believers and often choose to vote in ways that empower people that are for it, it's worth me taking a second to challenge you on that. Just the same way that folks on the left wanted to, and I think had a, a decent point, that challenged their, their brethren on the empowerment of the character of the previous president. Like, how can you possibly vote to empower this type of bad person? Fine question. And I got to ask, how on earth? 
Can you vote to empower those who don't just consider abortion a necessary evil, but really celebrate it? How can you do it? How do you, how do you reconcile it? And it's at least worth uh, thinking through. It's not something just to brush off. How do I reconcile that? What are the other things that I think are more important? Because this is where we need to get. This is, we need to put abortion in the category of slavery. Could you ever fit in your brain trying to empower someone who is pro-slavery? Trying to empower a party, a philosophy that's pro-slavery? I know I couldn't. It's worth bringing up, at least every January, that the argument for the pro-life position only gets stronger all the time. One of the smarter guys I know, more talented guys I know, I think he, he's, yeah, he listens to the show. His name's Zach. He recently, or in the last few months, sent me a message on Twitter that said, uh, said the following. I was talking about how I think ultimately it won't be a moral, it won't be a moral victory against abortion. It'll be a scientific one. Science is going to end up having enough cheap and effective birth controls that unwanted pregnancies become a really rare thing. And eventually we will also be able to, instead of killing children, extract them and let them grow and develop in like a third womb, something that we will create and babies can just develop outside of the womb. And I think he, he affirmed that. Like he thought the same, Zach was affirming. That's probably what's going to be the case. But it's, it is worth saying as this comes around every year to take time on the air and time on the show to say, we know what we're doing now. In 73, when Roe versus Wade was decided, there was some real mystery about what was going on in the womb. There's no mystery now. We have 3D ultrasounds. We know a lot of what's happening in gestation. There's really no mystery at all. And when we snuff out life in the womb, we know exactly what we're doing. Usually for our own convenience, for our own ease of life, we end life. One more word on this. Oh, two more words on this. And so for the believer, there are action items. Prayer is a true action item that this scourge, that this travesty would end in our lifetimes. Lord, let it be soon. There are two crisis pregnancy centers in the upstate of South Carolina to donate to, to volunteer for. Wherever you live, there's probably something similar. It's worth your time. It's worth your money. There's preborn.org, preborn.org. You can donate money that they fund ultrasounds at these, these pregnancy centers, these pro-life pregnancy centers. Center, uh, centers. It is a giant drop in the, abor- uh, in the abortion rate when a woman sees the ultrasound of her child, and we want to be able to provide those ultrasounds for free. Preborn.org, preborn.org. I, I give them a dona- donation every year. And then I want to give this, this final word. It's, it's likely that's the case that someone eventually will hear this who has some real intimate experience with an abortion. Someone listening, or you know someone listening. So I just want to toss this out. I have been forgiven so much. Paul wrote that he was the chiefest of sinners. And when I search my own heart, I know that I could give him a run for his money. There is no sin that's too far gone. I talk about abortion in really horrific terms because it is really horrific. 
But sir or madam who works in the abortion clinic, who works in that Planned Parenthood, there is forgiveness for you. Be crushed by what your sin has done. And let that crushing bring you to the foot of the cross. Madam, be crushed by the life you ended. And let it bring you low to the foot of the cross. Where there is a loving God who put on flesh, who would, who would take your face, lift it up. And if you, if you would come to confession and repentance, it would bring you into full community with him, full relationship with him. And these things that you have done, all like, like the things that I have done, in confession and repentance, be tossed in the sea of forgetfulness. They will be as far as the east is from the west. This is probably a good time to take a break because that really is heavy. And when we come back, we will get into more news of the week and reaction there too. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on WHRT, his radio talk. Welcome back for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show on WHRT, his radio talk, and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening. Lots to do in this final segment, so let's dive right in. Uh, also, you can get the show, uh, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, or, or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find me. I will, I will be responding here in a moment to some listener submissions, and that's what triggered that reminder that you can get the show there. Uh, you can get in touch with me there as well. All right, so here's the first place I want to start. There are some numbers now out of this Georgia Senate races that I got so wrong that blew me away. Uh, let's Let's go with... Uh, it's the more granular look at, po- look at polling. And so that's the stuff I'm into. I used to, well, I used to be into it heavily. And here's what we found about voter turnout drop-offs. In the places where Republicans typically win, which is uh, the parts of Georgia, well, really North Georgia, so everything north of Atlanta, up in that rural part of Northwest Georgia, up into those mountains, and then the deep South Georgia, and then what they call in Georgia the Piedmont, which is, I guess, really south of Atlanta, takes up a lot of Atlanta. Here is the voter turnout drop-off. So from November 3rd, when they all showed up to vote for president, to the Senate election, uh, to the Senate elections. 75,000 dropped off, didn't even show up to vote in North Georgia. 50,000 in South Georgia, another 50,000 in that Piedmont area. So we are talking... What is that? 175,000! Like, which would have definitely made a difference in the Senate races. And so here's all that made me think about. As this massive drop-off happened, I mean, that did not show up for Senate races, but did show up for, uh, did show up for the presidential election. The votes for Georgia to be a red state for a long time, they're there. They exist. And so then their question for people like me becomes, how do you re-engage those people? Because those places, by the way, very rural. I just recently took a day and went down to, what area is that? Cle- uh, Cleveland, Georgia, and then Helen, Georgia as well. And these are very rural pl- places. I saw a lot of Trump flags. It's, these are folks who I know feel disaffected. That's what some of the polling shows, the social science. Uh, for that matter, a Hillbilly Elegy, the very famous book now, and now a show, not a movie, excuse me, on Netflix. That's what you'll find is these rural places, people feel disaffected, that the powerful people don't know them and don't care about them and actually dislike them if they think about them at all 
So the power in the media, the power in Hollywood, the power in D.C. hates these people and their way of life. Somehow, and I'll admit, I, I wish I could get it. I wish I could understand. Somehow, this group of rural people who feel forgotten and disaffected, somehow, it was Donald Trump from Queens, New York, with his face and name all over buildings in Manhattan. That guy, somehow, made them feel remembered and made them feel empowered. I don't get the social science of it, but whatever. That's what happened. And so now, for people like me, who do have an interest in a country not being socialist, for people like me who have an interest in maintaining freedom of religion and the Second Amendment, who, who prefer freedom over bondage, we, we do need those people. I see some folks in the Republican Party, people I like, seem to be thinking, well, we got to find a way to win without those people. Well, A, you're not going to, but B, why? I like those people. I think they got caught up by a charlatan. I think they got caught up in a bad, a bad uh, movement. But those, the rural American out there on his and her own, just building their lives, don't want to bother anybody. I like those people. We got to find a way to re-engage those folks. This is actually one of the reasons I find rightism to be morally superior to leftism on its face. On its face, people like that out in the country, the rural folks, really do just want to leave everyone alone and be left alone. Whereas leftism by its nature says, I don't want to leave you alone at all. I want to run stuff. I want power. And they end up making themselves feel better about themselves because they say they want power to do good things. They want to do good works. But nevertheless, they want to control you and control power. And so just by its nature, those folks are good folks, good-hearted. And I don't know how to re-engage them because the personality of Trump re-engaged them, but I'm just putting it out there. we got to find a way. I guess I have some beginnings of ideas, but I'd love to hear from you. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. Uh, the votes are there. We just got to find a way to re-engage them in the post-Trump era. Now let's get to, uh, nope, not yet. Before we get to quick listener feedback and questions, I have one more thought. Uh, we had the inauguration coming up for Joe Biden. By the time you listen to this, it's probably already happened. And I never really care for the pomp and circumstances of inaugurations. Uh, they often felt like to me coronations of a king. I don't like that stuff in that we're, we're not supposed to care this much. We're not supposed to care who has that stupid office. But people get really charged up about the inauguration. And as I was just seeing some coverage, I saw that they are including in this inauguration Sarah Fuller. She was that young lady from Vanderbilt University, plays on the soccer team, apparently very talented soccer player, who kicked a football for... Vanderbilt's, Vanderbilt's football team. And I just, I just well, I had several thoughts flood me at the same time. One was, oh, is this what we're going to have to do now? Great. The public eye where we just, it's a girl who did a thing and now we got to celebrate because intersectionality. And that's what we're going to have to do, I guess, for four years. We don't have to do it. You don't have to participate. I don't have to participate either. So we can choose to be annoyed or choose not to be annoyed. But in this, in this vein like to include this girl who just kicked a football very poorly, I almost feel for her that she doesn't have the self-awareness to know she should be embarrassed. I think back on that. And like, uh, let's, I need to temper this a little. 
So let me rephrase. All right, here we go. Let's do it this way. When I was a child, I got to play basketball with my older cousin, cousins and my big brother. So think about uh, Heath. Heath used to be on the show. We do sports back then. Um, my big brother Doug and all their all their friends, because I am a full seven, six, seven years younger than those guys. So you're thinking 16, 17-year-olds, I would have been 10 or 11. So you know, the physical differences are, are vast. And, at, and for that matter, I got to play with my dad some. And when you're a kid, they, you know, they don't guard you. You make a shot, make a big deal about it, right? That's, you're, you're treated like a child for doing something poorly. You did it fairly poorly, and you get celebrated for it. That's what happened with Sarah Fuller. She did something much more poorly than almost every man can do of, of any athletic prowess whatsoever. And then they threw her a little party. She should be insulted. It should be insulting. It should be insulting to women everywhere that they treated her like she was in special ed. She did the thing badly. And then they celebrated her for it. It should be embarrassing. But that's, man, I know where we're headed, and it's going to be a lot of that stuff. Just for the section of inter, for the sake of intersectionality, we celebrate the things we should not celebrate, like mediocrity. And that's going to happen for Sarah Fuller at the inauguration because this is a very stupid timeline in which we live. And that actually makes me think of one more thing about the inauguration. I'm going to go ahead and get ahead of this narrative. There is coming uh, these two narratives. We are a couple months from spring. Things are going to warm up. And so the virus spread is going to mitigate some, just like it did last year when it was coming around. That's going to happen at the same time that vaccines become more readily available. And so we're about to start beating COVID. And there's going to be a narrative that Joe Biden and Democrats did it. And that is really dumb. You know who, who did it? The medical community, scientific community. Actually, big pharmaceutical. That's who did it. Everyone hates all the big pharmaceutical companies. That's who really did it. Pfizer, AstraZeneca, those companies. That's who deserves the credit. And uh, as that happens, there's going to be credit given wrongly. And I'm just going to get ahead of the narrative and say, no, that's wrong. Those people don't deserve credit for this. Also, what's going to happen? Because now that they have, they have interest in reopening the economy, they have political interest, are, and then just spending money like crazy. There's going to be a bit of an economic uptick, and that's going to be uh, credited to generally the philosophy of liberalism. And for that matter, because of Joe Manchin in the Senate, the Democrat from West Virginia, Democrats are not going to get a lot of their really economic damaging policies through. And so there's going to be a decent economy while the pandemic is diminishing, and it's going to be a happy days are here again type reporting. And I'm just getting ahead of it. That's all false. All right, here we go. I got the uh, I got, got the questions from listeners. So first one is from William. He asks, would I get the COVID-19 vaccine? My answer is no, just because I don't feel like I need it. I'm young. I'm healthy. If it became available widely to me, I just have no interest in it. And that's really the only reason. I don't have much of an anti-vaccine streak in me. I just don't need it, don't want it. And so, no, I, I wouldn't do it, but only for that reason. Thank you, William. Uh, next, I got a question from Amanda. So she asks, 
about this idea that some Democrat somewhere is floating called baby bonds that uh, in an effort to try to fix the, quote, wealth gap, that we institute a system that every baby that's born gets basically a savings account or an investment account that the federal government gives to every baby. D and it the amount depends on how rich your parents are. So if your parents have a lot of money, you get almost nothing. And if your parents are poor, then you get tens of thousands of dollars in a savings account that you can't touch until you're 21. And so that account just sits there, accrues interest if it's savings or is in the stock market and maybe accrues value there. And so the federal government becomes a big investor in Wall Street in this way. And so uh, th just the idea of that was the question from Amanda. Uh, I oppose big government programs like that generally. So I, I would not support it at all. And also, it, it led me to this thought. I, I guess I am wrong on something. I, I thought immediately about that idea of giving every baby these investment accounts and just thought about how expensive it would be. Because I looked it up, it's around 4 million babies are born every year. So you think about giving thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to every baby born, and it's a very expensive prospect. And I, I just think about my own political thinking over my life. How fiscal discipline was a big part of it. I mean, I thought the reason, one of the major reasons Barack Obama was such a terrible president is he found a way to double the debt. As in all of the debt accrued in 230 years. He doubled it in eight. Like, how? Like, that's almost like hard to do, it feels like. But he did it. And I was talking about back in the Bush administration, how we had to fix, figure out Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, because we were running up the debt during the Bush administration. And we continue to run up the debt in these crazy ways. And all the stuff that I thought would happen by now, it hasn't happened, guys. You know, I actually like Ron Paul a good bit, the old libertarian congressman from Texas, when it comes to fiscal stuff. And followed him really closely on these matters. And I would have thought by listening to him and just general fiscal philosophy, by now, we should have terrible inflation and there should be less willingness for people to buy our bonds, other countries. And none of that has happened. And so now I'm, I'm sitting here rethinking my fiscal philosophy and it's a weird feeling for me. I'm not used to that. I, I tend to do a lot of research, a lot of thinking. I, I, I come to a decision and a, and a position, and I'm done. I've, I've figured it out. But now the evidence is showing me something else. Apparently, you can be in over $20 trillion of debt. You can have an over 100% debt-to-GDP ratio, and your economy can sort of just keep going. It can continue to grow. And there are, I guess there are some artificial reasons for that. It's how the Federal Reserve works and the, the, the way they're doing interest rates. But, and, and then there's, I think, guys, I, I really just think it's this. I've been trying to figure this out. Like, wh why hasn't our economy crashed? It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all fake money. As we come into this new period, uh, on this new administration, all the spending that wants to, get, that wants to happen with stimulus deposits to people's accounts again that I oppose, but I oppose out of fiscal discipline and also just because I think adults should grow up and be able to take care of themselves. And so I'm for rescue things. Like if you have been affected by the federal government's policies, the federal government owes you something, but people like me, I 
I'm not owed a thing, and so be, everyone be an adult. It's why I oppose, in part, the uh, forgiveness of student loans. Everybody grow up, pay your bills. It's, it's demeaning for the federal government to come along and say, oh, you, you precious little sweet child, let us take care of you. I don't want to be taken care of. I'm a man. I want to take care of myself. That, and I want that to be the heart of all adults, that we want to take care of ourselves. But the other part of that is fiscal discipline. And I, I thought by now we would be really suffering consequences, and we're not, and I think it's because we are still the best bet. So if you are someone with money and you want to invest, and you look around the world, the American economy is still a good bet. And so you still buy bonds and assume we're going to be able to pay them back. I don't know, it's, it's weird, and I actually would love to get your thoughts on that. Like here, here I have been my whole life talking about fiscal discipline. There seems to not be a negative consequence, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to figure out what I'm wrong about in that way. Uh, but to Amanda, I am against the idea. I actually think uh, that, I mentioned before I listened to a lot of NPR. I think that's a really strong way to go because they are coming from a, I actually think uh, that, I mentioned before I listened to a lot of NPR. I think that's a really strong way to go because they are coming from a left. I actually think uh, that, I mentioned before I listened to a lot of NPR. I think that's a really strong way to go because they are coming from a left. I actually think uh, that, I mentioned before I listened to a lot of NPR. I think that's a really strong way to go because they are coming from a left-wing way to go because they are coming from a left-wing perspective on NPR. They just don't, uh, they're not, uh, they don't beat you over the head with it too much. So I, I would go that direction. I think NPR is giving you straight-laced liberal thinking with most of their shows. They have the straight new shows, All Things Considered and Morning Edition, that's just headlines. But most of their other shows come from a liberal perspective. Everybody, thanks for listening to the show. I appreciate it. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.